You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. That love of him that, that begat, love of him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the truth today. I pray that you would help us as we dig into your word this morning, that you would help me to convey it clearly. I thank you for your people being faithful here this morning. I I thank you especially for our guests. And I pray that you would speak to each heart, especially to those that are visiting here today, and that you would help us to come face to face, confronted with the the truth this morning, uh, that, that we would obey and prove our love through it that we would obey the way that you hope that we would. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, use this message to make a difference in our hearts. And if there's anyone here today that isn't sure of their position in Christ, I pray that you would help them to get that settled this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Appreciate your standing in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 John is a book about evidence. And John spends most of his time in this letter looking at markers that should be present in an individual that claims to be part of God's family. And those, these family traits, as we've called the, the, the series title this year, uh, this, this, these, on Sunday mornings, uh, those family traits are the evidence that points to a genuine relationship with God. John doesn't do this with some kind of superiority or judgment and that's not his, his idea at all. That's not his spirit at all. Uh, he's not saying, well, look there. They don't have evidence. They do have evidence. Uh, the ones that don't, you know, we just discard them. That's not his spirit. What he's trying to do is he's saying, these are the basic proofs. These are the, this is the evidence that you're part of the family. And he's really asking the, the, the folks here in 1 John to examine themselves to compare themselves with the evidence that he gives, and not just to compare themselves, but also then to compare the markers to what they're hearing from other people. You see, in this day, uh, this, the false teaching was prevalent, and the false teaching was coming primarily from what we've, we've talked about before were the Gnostics of the day. And the Gnostics of the day claimed that Jesus Christ never came in the flesh. They said he didn't have an incarnation, that, that, he, that he came either as a spirit or there were only certain times in his life where he had a body. And there, there could have been um, some Jewish influences as well. And of course, the Jews would have been opposed to the thought that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh because they wholeheartedly rejected the gospel and the Messiah. Um, but I think probably what John is doing is writing to mostly Gentile readers uh, we know that based on history that John pastored the church in Ephesus, which, uh, which there wasn't much influence 
uh, according to what I understand, there wasn't much influence of the Jews in the church at this point. And we know that also because of the fact that John doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the law. Uh, like Paul would spend a lot of time talking about the law and talking about circumcision. Um, John doesn't spend much time in that. So I think his, his audience, his target audience, is mostly Gentile. And, and they were hearing false teaching from the Gnostics. And there were those that were rising even in the church that were, that were teaching false doctrine and, and pulling some away. And John is trying to help them to stand. He's trying to help them to see, no, as you hear all of these voices and, and you hear the false teaching, you've got to make sure that you know where you stand so that you're not pulled away as well. So as we've gone through here and, and seen this, John is kind of giving the readers basic evidence. He's saying, here are the simple markers that a person is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Here are the family traits. Here are the traits that you can look at and say, yes, that person has the marks of a member of God's family. And that person looks like a member of God's family. They bear evidence. He's trying to get them to look around and give them basic markers so that they can make the decision for themselves. How to tell who's an authentic member of the family. And as you summarize the basic markers, the primary evidence, I was thinking about this this week, trying to summarize what are the categories, what are the main categories um, of evidence or the traits or the markers. And I think what I kind of have come to is that the, the categories are truth, righteousness, and love. By truth, I mean what are they saying? What are they teaching? What are they proclaiming? Does their doctrine line up with what we know to be true of Jesus Christ. If a person stands up and says, Jesus Christ never came in the flesh, well, what does God's word say and how do I compare it? Well, I know that as a marker then, I can assume they're not part of God's family. So truth. The, third, the second was righteousness. By righteousness, I mean what are they doing? What does their life look like? Do their lives line up with what we have seen in the life of Jesus Christ? And the third is love. By love, I mean how do they treat the brethren? Do they sacrificially give of themselves for the good of others? Or are they causing conflict? Are they, are they causing wars and fightings and, and undermining authority? If they don't show love of the brethren, that's a marker. And you can make a conclusion based on the evidence. So John gives these three general areas. Truth, righteousness, and love. And he says these are the traits that matter the most. These are the things you need to be looking for. And he's telling the readers, you've got to look and see, do they bear family traits? And, and John actually deals with all three of those in the text we're looking at this morning. He starts with verse 1 and says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And to me, that's obvious. It fits into the category of truth. You know, you, when, what you believe is the foundation for what you are. As a Christian, you cannot be born of God into the family if you do not believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And to our guests this morning, let me just say that if you've never thought about that before, if you've never, if you've never really given much thought to it, let me just tell you that Jesus Christ, it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus Christ is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. But we also know that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus Christ is God, but he had an incarnation and in that he was born and lived in a fleshly body 
on this planet about 2,000 years ago. So if you've never considered that before, that's what the Bible says. Those are not my words, that's what the Bible says. Jesus Christ came in a body, and in his body, he lived a sinless, pure, holy life. He never once broke God's law. He, he never once went against what his father told him to do. He, lived a, he was the only human being that has ever lived a sinless, perfect life. And that qualified him to be the payment for our sins on the cross. So let me just tell you this morning, if you're a guest or you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, he has made salvation possible. He is God. He came to earth in a body. He as a sinless human being, all human, all God, he was qualified to die on a cross and pay for our sins on that cross. He's the only one that could have ever done that. And by paying for our sins, dying in our place on the cross, he gives us access to eternal life. You can spend eternity in heaven with God the Father because of Jesus Christ. Just as a summary, those are the truths that we have to understand if, if we want to bear the mark of a true Christian. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's where John starts. If you're truly born again, not only do you believe it, you won't stop believing it. It remains a marker in your life. Then look at the, at the second half of verse 1. He says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. He then starts to deal with love here. And you say, well, what is he talking about? Well, he says, everyone that loveth him that begat, that's God, loveth him also that is begotten of him. And that could refer to Jesus Christ. It could also refer to those that are born of God, which are you and I. Basically, what John is saying is he's kind of referring back to verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4. Look at those. In verse 20 and 21 of chapter 4, just a couple chapters or verses earlier, it says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. If, 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 this is another marker. You can look at someone's life and say, if they say they love God, but they hate their brother's, then you can assume, according to these verses, that person is not telling the truth. Because a mark, a trait of, of a member of God's family is if they say they love God, they will love the brethren also. So a person that has a struggle with loving those around them, loving members of God's family, you can say they certainly do not have a family trait of loving God and proving it as they love others. Your relationship with other people directly reflects your relationship with God. Love is the most convincing trait in the family. And you say, well, please don't do another message on love. It's been about five or six straight weeks. Well, I don't know that we could hear enough of it because if it's the most convincing trait in the family of God, we need to hear about it. Without love, there's not much evidence of a relationship with God. But, if this, but John starts to get away from just focusing on love this morning and, and, and I'll, we'll connect it, but we'll start to move in a different direction in the same way, and I want you to focus here, in the same way that love is the primary indicator of a genuine relationship with God, there is also a primary marker for love. 
Understand that? So in the same way, if, if you were to say, what's the primary marker? What's the, what's the baseline marker or evidence that a person has a genuine relationship with God? Well, lived out, it's love. That's the primary marker. But John then takes it further and says, there's also a primary marker or evidence of love, and that is obedience to God's word. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we, when we love God and keep his commandments. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So the primary trait that reveals our love for God is when we obey him. So you could say, I love God, and you could say it all day long, but if you don't obey God's word, then a conclusion can be made about your relationship with God. Your proof of a relationship, of a genuine relationship with God, is showed out, it's lived out, by how well you obey Him. Obedience is our greatest proof of love. Obedience to God's commandment is the clearest way to prove that a person loves God. Jesus Christ said in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said in that same chapter, he that hath my commandments and keepeth him, he it is that loveth me. Same, a different way to say, if you love God, you keep his commandments. You know, there's a movement today that says love is all that matters. There's a movement, even in modern religion today, that says love is the highest virtue, it's all that matters, and and really what they're saying is tolerance or acceptance is the highest virtue. Now, I'm not at all standing up here, and I preached on this a few weeks ago, I'm not at all standing up here and saying that you should not accept people. Because I believe God accepts sinners. And if God accepts sinners, we should too. But it doesn't mean that love ignores whether or not someone obeys God's word. It, as good as it sounds, John says love is always connected with obedience. In other words, the highest form of love is when we follow and obey God's word. Love is not just allowing somebody to do whatever they want. Love is giving them truth so their lives can be aligned with Scripture. Now, I want to love as much as the next guy, but am I really showing love if I allow someone to continue on a path that is not good for them? Is that truly love? Now, I have children. I have a six-year-old son. And my son right now, he got a new bike recently. Um, by the way, it, it, sons, if you ever want a bike, go bike shopping with your dad, not your mom. Because if mom would have taken him shopping, she would have gotten him a bike that, you know, is cheap and, you know, whatever. It's just on the low end. When dad takes you bike shopping, though, okay, I want double, handle, uh, double handlebar brakes. And I want pegs somewhere on that thing. And it needs to be shiny. And it needs to go super fast. So I have to admit, I spent more money than I was probably supposed to. But that's what happens when you go bike shopping with your dad. Okay? So I took my son bike shopping. And I got him a bike. And it's got pegs. And it's got the, the double brakes. And, and he rides it on our street. Now, uh, we live on a, just a kind of a normal street, but we, he can't ride it unless we're out there with him. And it goes down the sidewalk, out one driveway, across to another driveway, up a couple driveways and back, and just does a loop. We don't just let him go riding wherever we want him to go. 
I mean, we want him to have some control and, and some awareness. And, well, he rides that thing like crazy. And he's trying to, do, he's trying to get the front wheel off the ground a little bit. And he goes, goes off of curbs. And the other day, he realized you can't go onto curbs straight onto it either. So he's learning lessons. But, you know, if, if my son is riding his bike and I'm out there watching him, and he goes up the road and he's about to come out of one of the driveways, and I see a car pull off of the main street onto our street going pretty fast. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like, well, he's just expressing himself, so I'll just let him deal with it. No. I'm going to say, Jace, watch out. Why? Because I love him. See, love doesn't not allow him to continue on the path he's on because, well, it allows him to express himself and that's what he wants to do right now. No, love intervenes. Love doesn't just allow him to live the life he wants to live. If I know that he's on a path to destruction, true love is not just accepting him where he's at. It's saying, no, I need to warn you that destruction comes if you're not paying attention, son. That's love. In our culture, love is, well, you accept people where they are. But what if their lifestyle, according to the Bible, is one that puts them at odds with God? Do I really love them if I just accept them where they are and say, well, that's who they are and I'll receive them and accept them? No, if I really love them, I will tell them what God's word says about their lifestyle because I love them and I don't want them to end up in destruction. See, there's a big difference between our culture's definition of love and the Bible definition of love. The Bible definition of love is always connected to obedience. If I love a brother, I will not allow him to continue in sin. I will tell him where his life doesn't align because I want him to obey because that's, that's the best life. Keeps him out of destruction. You know, the purest form of love is connected with obedience, not just free license. If love is seeking another's best, then I'll prove our, we'll prove our love through obedience to God's word. This is one of the most important Christian markers. If someone says they love God, but they don't live a life that looks like the Bible, that follows the Bible, then you can probably safely assume that they don't truly love God like they say. But that applies to others. It also applies, though, in our own relationship to God. John takes this thought and he digs a little deeper. He makes an important point about the right way to practice obedience. And I want you to notice here at the end of verse 3 what he says about our obedience to God. It says, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Is it possible to obey simply out of duty? Have you ever done something simply because you were supposed to, but you didn't really mean it? I remember as a kid when I would get into altercations with my sister. Now, I was bigger than my sister, but she was tougher than me. And I'm just admitting that. I'm being transparent. But when we would get in altercations, my parents would always, you know, we'd get in trouble. They'd make us look at each other, and they would make us say what? I hate, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. They'd make us say I'm sorry. You know how many times, though, I looked my sister in the eye, and in my heart, I wasn't sorry at all, but I said it. You know, life can be that way, and that we can obey. It's possible to obey and not be happy about it. It's possible to obey and not have your heart in it. 
But John is pointing out a difference here between obedience out of duty and obedience out of love. See, we can obey out of duty, but when love is involved, it changes the way that we obey. That's the marker of the child of God, not just that a Christian obeys, but that they obey with a sense of delight. They obey with a sense of pleasure and enjoyment. So what does John mean, though, when he writes, and his commandments are not grievous? Well, the word grievous means heavy in weight. It means, as a metaphor, it's burdensome. It's severe. It's stern. It's weighty. It's violent. Cruel. Unsparing. That's what the word grievous means. So last week, we, we talked, let me give you an illustration. We talked about a culture of fear and how in that environment of fear, you could have consistent obedience, but it's weighty. It's burdensome. It's severe. It's violent. It's cruel. So a scenario would be, let's say that at work, you, you work in a culture of fear, a culture of weightiness, a culture of grievousness. So your boss comes to you and says, here's a project. I want you to get this project done. You have one week. If you don't get this project done, you will be publicly reprimanded. You will be in trouble. I will make your life miserable. It will not be fun for you at all. You say, well, hey, I have a boss like that. That's that's not a fun environment to work in, is it? Now, you could still get the work done. You could still complete the project. But in doing so, it would be grievous. It's heavy, it's weighty, it's burdensome. Now, the the second scenario is that you have a boss that comes to you and he gives you the same project, but this time he says something to this effect. Now, listen, we only have a week to get this done. And I, as your boss, I will provide whatever resources necessary to help you get this project done. If you need something, let me know. And listen, this deadline is very important, but I know that you can do this. And I have every resource you need. I've got it available if you need it. Let me know. And a week later, you finish the same project. The same thing gets done. It's the same result. But through the process, the commandment was not grievous. It was not heavy. It wasn't cruel. It wasn't violent. It wasn't manipulative. It wasn't hard. See, I believe that that illustration sums up what John is writing in verse 3. See, when it comes to serving God, our motive to serve is love, not fear. Verse 18 of chapter 4 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Listen, God is not the angry boss. A lot of people would have you believe that. God isn't some micromanaging chief who just wants to make the no-name laborers live some miserable, unfulfilled life. No, he wants us to do what we do out of love for him and love for others and have a sense of joy while we're doing it. He wants to operate out of love, not of fear. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, want our obedience to be grievous. And I'm thankful that I serve a master like that because he could have made it hard. When you have a boss like that, that, that wants your best and wants to give you resources and to help you, or, or a coach, or parents, or ministry leaders, it's enjoyable. They love you, you know it, they treat you with respect, they're interested in your life, they're willing to challenge you because they don't want you to settle or stay where you are, but it's obvious they have your best interest in mind. That's how it is to serve God. I'm thankful for that. I mean, I wouldn't want to live this life if I knew the whole thing was going to be miserable. If I knew that there would never be anything good or anything enjoyable or anything satisfying. 
I mean, we know God loves us. He loves us. He proved it. And we know that his proof of love means that he wants what's best for us. We know that he's looking for followers that love, not followers that are afraid. What better life is there? I mean, this is a good life. We get to serve and follow the Father who gave his son for us. And when you consider the cross, there's no doubt that at any, every step along the way in the future, he wants what's best for me. He already proved he does. But listen, there's a balance to all this. There are a lot of demands when it comes to serving God. You see, even when you have a boss that doesn't make things grievous, does that mean he just lets you come in and play video games and, and go you know, eat snacks and hang out and set your own hours and whatever? No production? You don't have to do anything? It's fine. I mean, it sounds like a great job, but that's not how real work happens. See, even though you have a boss that loves you, and even though you have a boss that's, grievous, that's not grievous and he wants what's best for you, it doesn't mean that it's always easy. There are still deadlines. There are still extra hours. There are still some, there's still some pressure. You know, it's serving God. It's a great, he's a great God and it's a great life, but it's not always easy. He's holy. And he expects us to be holy. His standard for righteousness, listen, his standard for righteousness is a high bar. He sees everything that I do and he expects me to make it right when I blow it. He wants us to believe his truth and follow his righteousness and love like he loves. It's the standard he gives us. He gave his son as the example of the kind of life that we're supposed to live. And when I start thinking about it that way, I'm like, whoa. I mean, all that talk about how good this life is when you serve God, it suddenly feels like there's a little bit more pressure. When I realize that the standard is high, that the expectations are high, because the truth is, there are a lot of demands when it comes to following Jesus Christ. He told his, his disciples, he said, if you come after me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. You have to deny yourself. That's not all video games and setting your own hours. And you start thinking about it, and honestly, it can feel a little overwhelming sometimes. I mean, if you're living a life as a Christian that is anywhere close to pleasing God as it should, and when we don't live up to the standard, we have to answer for it. So my question this morning is, how do we rectify that high demand for obedience with the fact that there's no fear in love? How do we come to terms with the high marks required as a member of the family, but also at the same time know that, God, that John writes that God's commandments are not grievous? Do you see the contrast here a little bit? There's a high standard. There's a high mark, but it's not supposed to be fearful. There's a high standard. There's a high mark, but we're not, we're not supposed to approach his commandments with a grievous spirit. So how do you overcome it? Do you just look at the cross, well, that's a good place to start. God's done so much for us, the least we can do is obey. But gratitude for what he's done doesn't necessarily mean it won't be heavy. I mean, I could be thankful for the cross, but if I'm going through a trial and I'm going through a struggle in the moment, I mean, I'm thankful for that, but, but I'm not sure it answers all the questions. It doesn't make it any easier in the moment. There will be times when following God is hard. There will be seasons when believing truth or living righteousness or displaying love, it gets heavy. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and, and if we receive that and his payment for our sins, it guarantees eternal life. But listen, it does not guarantee that life is perfect right now. See, there are a lot of folks out there, and they're preaching a health and wealth gospel, and they say, well, if, if you're right with God, he'll give you good health and lots of money and everything you ever wanted. And I don't know where those people get that gospel, but it's not found in the Bible. There's never been anybody, uh, anybody more righteous than Jesus Christ, and he was hated to the point that they killed him. And we're told that the servant's not greater than his Lord. So why would I think that I'd have it better than what Jesus Christ ended up with? We're not promised health and wealth. We're not promised an easy life. We still face persecution and we'll face battles and we'll have struggles. We will still have to fail at times and we have to fight at times the urge to feel sorry for ourselves when the many commandments of God get hard because they do. I mean, Paul himself, one of the greatest Christians to ever live, wrote in Romans 7, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. You get the sense when you read Romans 7 that Paul thought, man, it's a little heavy right now. His commandments are sometimes not easy. His commandments go against our, our nature as sinners. His commandments set a high bar. They're not easily followed. We have high expectations on us as his children. So what is it that helps us through this? How do we trust the truth that there's no fear in love and that his commandments are not grievous? Well, we have to remember a truth like we see in verse 4. Where it says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. You see, John didn't say that God, if it gets too hard, that he backs off of his commandments. John didn't say when it gets too heavy that he'll lower the standard or he'll make allowances so it's a little easier or we don't have to measure up to the truth or righteousness and love. No, he writes that God's commandments are not grievous because, listen, God's love didn't just change our past, it changed our future. He didn't just make, us, make it better for us back there, he'll make it better for us in the future. He says in verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Overcome means to conquer or carry off the victory. The world as we know it is the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of Satan, um, of Satan's influence, that mass of men that are alienated from God, that's Satan's realm of influence. So what John is saying, listen, those who have truly been born again will not endure the same fate as the world in the end. Satan's realm of influence, the world, and all that reflects Satan is opposed to God, the world. It has no long-term effect on where you end up if you're a true child of God. It has no say in how you end up. Our end is already determined, and the world can't change that. We carry off the victory. We overcome the world. And I'm telling you today, we may not be promised wealth or honor or blessings on earth. We may never have the biggest house or the newest car or the best clothes or go on the best vacations. We might face face some health issues or some battles that don't seem fair. And the world at times may look down on us when everything comes crumbling down. But what John is saying here is that the love of God didn't just change our past. And it may not even outwardly change our present. But he promises us and tells us that God's love has certainly, though, changed our future. 
And while the world may look on and they may even at times laugh at our present, we know that in the end, we will overcome the world because of our position in Jesus Christ. Our faith in Jesus Christ, it may not secure a life of ease, but it will guarantee the best future. Placing our faith as sinners in Christ's payment on the cross has put us in a position to have all kinds of spiritual blessings. All kinds. And there's a principle at work here today that I want you to get because I think if you can take this principle and apply it to all areas of your life, it will help you, it will help me. Because obedience can feel hard, it can. It can feel heavy when, listen, as an employee, you're the only one standing for right. It can feel hard and heavy when parents, you're trying to raise your kids in this culture and you have friends or you have family members that question your biblical discipline and training principles. Teenager, it can feel hard when you're trying to stand at school and be the only one that lives right at school or talks about Jesus Christ with your classmates. It can feel hard even in this youth group at times if you're the only one standing. If you want to obey God's word and follow God, no one else seems to be concerned. It's hard. Husbands, you know what the Bible says. You know how the Bible's leading you to lead your family in a certain direction, but you, don't, you have a wife or children that aren't on board and they don't see it. It's hard. It can feel heavy, wives, when you're trying to serve God, but your husband is not interested. We find ourselves trying our best to love God as we should and obey his commands because that's what we're told to do, but it can seem grievous and hard and heavy and difficult. And yes, we know God loves us and he wants our best and he provides for us and we trust him and we have faith. But what do you do when the commandments get grievous? When you're the only one in your family, ladies, who decides to dress in a manner that's distinct to femininity. And you want to show the world, um, not as a, a spiritual superiority, but you want to show the world in a, in a world that, that gender is being erased that you as a woman say, God made me a female, and as a female, I want to be as feminine as I can, and so I will show the world that I was made a female because in this day and age, we need some that are, that are not blending the genders, but standing out for who they are. That's not always easy. There are a lot of people that don't understand that thought process, and it gets hard. You want to obey God's word, but it's heavy. When you're the only one at work going home instead of heading down to the bar to get drinks on a Friday night. It gets a little hard. When your neighbor gets a new vehicle and you need one too and you need one pretty badly but you really can't afford it because 10% of your income goes to God and you're not going to compromise on that. And not just 10% but folks there's a lot of people giving 10 to 15, 20% or more to missions every week as well. We got some giving uh, 10% or 5% to a church building fund to make sure that we can pay for our building. A lot of people giving above and beyond even their tithes. And you can't work extra because you won't work on the Lord's Day. And it starts to, at sometimes you feel a little heavy. When everyone you know gets Sunday off to sleep in or, or do their housework or get together for brunch, and you, like many here, in this room, you get up early on Sundays to get the family ready for church, and then you have a short afternoon, and the kids don't get much of a nap before you have to get ready to go back for Sunday evening service at 6, which many in this room will be back at 6 o'clock tonight. 
not to mention Wednesday night at 7, and then we have outreach throughout the week and ladies' meetings and other things going on. What do you do when it feels heavy? What do you do when you've done right but it's grievous? You've tried your best to love God and love the brethren and live righteously and believe and hold the truth. Well, you have to remember 1 John 5, 4. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. See, here's the truth that John's trying to get across. I hope you'll take this away today. Is that obedience means you choose what's hard now so you can enjoy what's best later. Obedience means you choose what's hard right now so you can enjoy what's best later. Or you could say it this way, obedience trades what e- what's easiest for what's best. See, this is where faith comes in. The last word of verse 4 is faith. It says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And I want you to follow here because here's where the principle really starts to take effect. Faith obeys. Listen, faith obeys not based on what seems easiest right now, but, it, but, but is based on what's best later on. This is the difference between those who follow God and those in the world. See, the world looks at things like, and I'm just going to use this as the example this morning, but the, the, the world looks at things like disciplining a child and says, I don't want this to be grievous or heavy. I don't want this to feel too hard. So I will choose to allow my child to express himself however he chooses. And it sounds great. That's the philosophy of many in the world, isn't it? And it sounds great, but according to the Bible, faith means you read a verse like Proverbs 22, 6, that says, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Or you read Proverbs 29, 15, that says, the rod and reproof giveth wi- give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. See, the truth is, if you love that child, you want them not to depart from God when they grow up. If you love that child, you want them to love God and have wisdom and not bring shame, and you love them. So you have a choice to make. Listen, you've got a choice to make. But most people confuse the choice. They think the choice is, well, I'm choosing between hard and easy. They say discipline and training are hard, so I'll choose the easy route. But it's not that simple. And I want you to follow. The choice is not between hard and easy. If that was the case, we'd all just choose easy, because it's better, it's easier. No, choosing easy now means it gets hard later. You understand? It's not just choosing between hard and easy. You're choosing, if you choose easy now, it still gets hard later, according to the Bible, because when they're old, that means they'll depart. Or later on, they're going to bring shame to their mother, See, according to the Bible, if we don't discipline our children, it seems easier, but it gets hard when they depart and when they bring shame. So the choice is not, listen, the choice is not between hard and easy. The choice is when it's hard and when it's easy. If you choose and follow, and I think you'll get it, if you choose to train and discipline now, it feels grievous, it can seem hard and heavy and overwhelming, but by training and disciplining, And being consistent, parents, being consistent, you are making the choice to accept the hard right now, knowing that in the end, according to faith in God's word, that the result is easier. That the result is what's best. 
It gets easier. So you accept the pressure now. You accept the standard now. You obey what the word says, even if it means doing it alone or going against the grain or doing it differently than your parents do it or having family members judge how you're doing it. No, you just say, I will accept the hard today because it means the best is coming tomorrow. And by tomorrow, I I don't mean in 24 hours. Unless you have brilliant children who, um, who deserve to be, you know, on television. Because it doesn't work that way. When I say tomorrow, I don't mean 24 hours. It might mean 24 years. I mean, though, that you obey today. And the commandments are not grievous because you know that in the end, what God promises is better than anything that feels easy right now. This applies to dieting. I didn't want to say that word today, but I did. It applies to exercise. You do what's hard today because in the future it's easier and better. It applies to getting work done now as opposed to waiting to the last minute. It applies to construction. I was talking with Brother Phil Everett yesterday and he was telling me about putting a road in and he was saying, I don't have the money to do it right, but I don't want to do it wrong. And I gave him the example. We did the same thing with our driveway when we built a house in Stillwater, seven or 800 feet, but I spent a lot of money to build it upright and pack it down right and get lots of gravel on it. And in 10 years, we never had to add gravel because we did it right in the first place. So when you do something right at the beginning, it may seem hard and it may seem grievous and it may seem like, why are we going to these lengths? But later on, when it's easy and it's better, you look back and say, I'm glad I made the decision to do it hard at the beginning and to do it God's way at the beginning because in the end, the commandment ended up not being very grievous. There'll be times when the moment's hard and believing God's truth doesn't come easy Living righteously is difficult, it's heavy. Loving your brothers and sisters isn't natural, it's grievous. And in those moments, folks, you realize that faith doesn't mean it's never hard. Faith doesn't mean that it never gets difficult. Faith doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about it and it's not burdensome. Faith doesn't mean that it's all just a life of ease and you don't have to mess with it. No, faith simply means that I'm choosing for it to be hard right now. So that in the end, it's better. In the end, it's easier. In the end, it's best. See, by choosing to do right and trust God and believe his word when it seems hard, you're choosing the best outcome in the end. See, it's hard now sometimes to give up a Saturday and go tell people about Jesus Christ. It's hard we had a group come out yesterday at 3.30. Take tracks and go knock on doors to tell people about Jesus Christ. We have people that take tracks in their pockets, in their wallets, in their purses, and everywhere they go, they give out an invitation. Listen, folks, if you'll do that, I mean, that's, that's what we're looking for everywhere you go. But when one of them comes to church, it seems hard, though. Saturday afternoon, every time you talk to a cashier at Walmart, you don't want to be embarrassed It seems hard in that moment, but when one of them comes to church or you happen to reach one for Jesus Christ, that hard right now sure seems easy because the end is really good. His commandments are hard, but in the end, they're not grievous. It's hard now to be faithful to every service here at Eastside Baptist Church. 
But when you start to finally grow into Christ-likeness, and you start to become who you're supposed to be based on the Word's effect on your life, and then you come in here and you're sharpened on a Sunday night, you're held, and you're held accountable by your friends to people that love you, and you start then to influence others to grow through the church, that hard doesn't seem quite as hard because the end is really good. And in the end, obedience, it's not grievous. It's not heavy because the end is good. Disciplining your children every time they need it, it's hard. To not let them get by with throwing some fit or, you know, throwing a fit or disobedience, to take the time every time to train, even if it takes a few hours, which we've done with every one of our children at times. You just block off some time and you spend some time in training your children. And it's hard right now and I don't have the time. But when they're 16 and they love God and they love you and you can trust them to do right, even when you're not watching, well, that end is really good. It's hard now to be disciplined in your walk with God, to give Him time every day. But your personal relationship with God on a daily basis through his word and through prayer, it's essential to your growth as a Christian. You becoming what you're supposed to be is largely dependent on that daily choice to walk with God, and it's, but it's hard to set an alarm and wake up. Actually, it's easy to set the alarm. It's hard to get up. It's hard to set an alarm and then wake up. It's hard at night to turn off the TV or put down the phone and read your Bible and spend time in prayer. But when you fulfill your purpose as a Christ-like member of God's family, you find yourself walking with Christ and being like Christ on a personal level, the result is the furthest thing from grievous. Instead of heavy or burdensome, it's freeing. It's full of joy. We probably have some in this room even today. And listen, right now, to have faith seems hard. You've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And right now, it's hard. You're thinking, I don't think I could make that decision. And we'll have an invitation in just a moment. And there have been many that pass by an invitation because it's hard. It seems, it seems difficult. It seems heavy. I don't really want to take that step out. But listen, by receiving by faith... Jesus Christ and his payment on the cross this morning, it, it's hard today. It'll be hard in the moment. But after you make that decision and you know that you're on your way to heaven forever, boy, I'm telling you, that end is really good. And it may seem heavy and there may be something even right now working in your heart against you making that decision but I'm going to encourage you today to step forward and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior because what seems hard right now, in the end, it's way better. To have faith in Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, it's a great life. And it's a life lived by faith, which doesn't mean it's always easy, but in the end, it's always better. How can obedience to so many standards and requirements be anything but heavy? Because not only do we win in the end, not only is there victory promised to overcomers, but God somehow makes the present really good too. And when it's heavy, your walk with God gives you a sense of peace and joy and fulfillment that passes human understanding because you're operating by faith. Not by what feels easiest in the moment. 
So it may be hard, but you're choosing when it's hard. To make the tough choice now means it's better in the end. But God in his grace even makes it great today. He even makes it fulfilling right now. I don't know how he does it, but he does. So in conclusion, obedience means you choose what's hard now so you can obey, enjoy what's better later. Obedience trades what's easiest now for what's best later. How are you doing at making the hard choices today by faith? Have his commandments become grievous? In the end, don't forget, faith wins. In the end, all the love and obedience and commandments, it's all worth it. Because in the end, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And all the things that, that call your attention right now that seem like this is the easy path. Boy, you just take perspective on where you stand with Jesus Christ. And all those other things suddenly fade. Because who we are in Jesus Christ is the best ending ever. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.